Blog Talk Radio. And now we're live with everybody. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Oh, yes. Yuna's already the star of the show. Yes. And we have Nico over here sleeping. Netflix over there doing And Lulu's just wandering around. Yeah, so they may all make their appearances on this national cat. We shall see. Monasteries of early medieval Ireland, monks would distill alcohol, which they called 
Ulsa which translates roughly to the water of life. The monks referred to this process, um, refined to this process rather, after traveling across Europe and observing the process by which perfumes were crafted. Fun fact number one for the evening. Yes, distillation is one process that can be used for creating perfumes. The monks tweaked the distillation process to suit their own needs and desires, and then used the technique to make a boozy liquid that was flavored with herbs and spices for drinking. While the Scottish lay claim to the earliest documented mention of whiskey back in 1494, made by Friar John Corr, the Irish may have been the first to actually craft distilled alcohol, arguably with mixed success. Another document from the Annals of Comic Noise from the year 1405 indicates that a local clan chief, Richard Magranall, died after supping on the water of life. The clan chief reportedly developed a fire in the pit of his stomach, which subsequently led to his sudden death. It's, un- yeah. <laughs> it's unclear whether the chief indulged too much, received a badly distilled batch with lethal amounts of methanol, whether he may have had other underlying health issues, uh, or perhaps was even poisoned outright. Regardless of the cause, the water of life was forever linked with the unfortunate chief's death. As time passed, the Irish and Scottish both gained notable reputation for producing quality spirits, and while the two cultures have historically gotten along with each other fairly well, they are individually both very defensive of their respective beverages. Now, let's sum up. The Irish added an E to the word whiskey to differentiate their product from their Scottish neighbors. While many will call Scottish whiskey scotch, give the impression that the two are completely different despite their many similarities. We could talk endlessly on the topic of Irish whiskey versus scotch, particularly if we start to go ahead and throw in Kentucky bourbon in the mix, which will be (laughs) making an appearance on this evening's show. Because I had to. Yep. But we're here to talk about the permanent resident spirits that reside in many distilleries. If you're a big fan of distilled liqueur, you might understand the desire to hang out where your favorite beverage is made after your time on the mortal coil has passed. And some distilleries, having hundreds of years of history, have allowed for there to be plenty of time for some spooky stuff to happen in these storied establishments. So, now, I will say, we're at Allegate. Obviously, um, there are a lot more distilled liquors besides whiskey, scotch, and bourbon. A lot more. You know, you're, you've got your vodkas, your rums, you got all that stuff. And some of those may make an appearance in our volume two, but tonight's episode is basically going to be focused on Irish whiskey, scotch, and bourbon. So, because there was just enough material there to work with. So, that will be our volume one tonight. And as such, we are going to be starting in Ireland. So it didn't take the Irish too terribly long to determine that whiskey should be regulated, with King James I issuing a license to Sir Thomas Phillips to distill whiskey on April 20th, 1608, on property in County Antrim. This was the origin of the famous Bushmills, the oldest surviving licensed distillery in the world. While that alone gives Bushmills some major bragging rights, there's one thing that Bushmills likes even more about their history. That uh, King James I that granted them the distilling license is the same King James that had the Bible translated, but the distilling license came first because, you know, priority. 
<laughs> the first license paved the way for many other distillers to produce and refine their own whiskeys, including Kilbegan Distillery in County Westmeath. The stills of Kilbegan date back to 1757 when Matthew McManus founded the operation. McManus's family oversaw the operations until the business was acquired by John Locke in 1843. Locke's distillery ran successfully for many years before prohibition, trade wars, and an aging infrastructure eventually made operations unsustainable, forcing the distillery to close in 1958 after 201 years of trade. Fortunately, this wasn't the end for Kilbegan and Locke as the doors reopened in 1987 under new management. Today, Kilbegan, Locke's Blend, and Locke's Malt whiskeys are now produced at the site. Original distillery features, including a water wheel and a steam engine, have been fully restored, and a museum and restaurant are also on site for the enjoyment of guests. In addition to the distillery staff, there are some very different spirits who are said to be keeping an eye on the day-to-day -day operations of the since 2007, a mysterious figure in a black robe has been spotted in the courtyard. It is possible that the spirit may be related to a cistern abbey that once stood nearby and which was dissolved in 1539. Loud noises and the sound of footsteps have been heard emanating from empty lofts, and the sound of whispering is also common when the building is quiet. For some time, the locals and the staff have told of close encounters and strange noises <clears throat> around the distillery grounds. Many skeptics disregard this as hearsay, at least until the Irish distillery became well known for its spooky reputation, then attracted the attention of a psychic who performed a seance at the location. In addition to the monks who still haunt the grounds, the psychic also made contact with several individuals with strong ties to the distillery. He said, previous owners to the distillery linger on, including Kilbegans, the founder Matthew McManus, and his son John. Matthew seems content with the current operation, likely aided by the strong historical establishments across the property. However, John couldn't let go of the past and couldn't let it rest. He expressed anger over his execution at the hands of British for breaking curfew in 1798. The British alleged John was a member of the United Irishmen, an organization that sought the rights of a republic independent of Great Britain. The psychic went on to describe a vision of workers gathering to, uh, to present former owner John Locke a gift. Excuse me, gathering to present former John, uh, owner John Locke a gift. In 1866, Tobagan's boiler exploded, and the workers presented John Locke with a new one. John Locke often seemed to linger on as a distillery in his own right, apparently upset about his own death, which he felt had come too soon. Lastly, the psychic came claimed to meet Slow Locke, the last Kilbegan manager before it closed, who recently uh, recounted her sadness at the distillery falling silent in 1954 and her great joy at its reopening in 2007. Despite some individual personal grievances, spirits generally seem to be satisfied that Kilbegan, a place they put so much of themselves into during their lives, is back in thriving today. A few comments, or but uh, not, not questions. Okay. So we're going to pop over to Scotland, and we're going to go to Glenside Distillery. Uh, moving across, of course, the Irish Sea, we end up in Scotland where we find a small town of Rock 
in the county Stateside region. There are five distilleries in Ross, including Glen Bay Distillery. Despite being relatively small and obscure distillery, Glen Bay has a rich and intriguing history. Over the years, Glen Bay has shared the town of Ross with four other distilleries, Glen Ross, Glen Grant, Sayburn, and Cappernish. Glenfay's production is relatively modest compared to its neighbors, which explains why it can stay off of so many people's radar. It started its life as an oatmeal mill in the shadow of the ruins of Rock Castle, the great ancient seat of the Leftwood family, and one put forth home the infamous Wolf of Brennock, Alexander Stewart. The mill's founder, James Stewart, was a corn merchant before he branched out into whiskey. The distillery was founded in 1878, and the Stewart family simply added distilling equipment to the building. In 1887, it was sold to the London-based Gilday Company. The distillery survived a small fire in 1920, and in 1962, Gilday Company merged with the United Wine who were responsible for the production of J&B blended whiskey. In 1970, the number of stills were increased from two to four, bringing the distillery's production to modern day levels. Under the merge, Glens Bay became a major part of the J&B blend. Glens Bay survived a series of corporate mergers and in the late 20th century finally resulting in the Diego obtaining the site. And an interesting twist in the distillery's acquisition was uh, by the beverage giant gave its first chance to shine as an individual brand. Glens Bay, for which over 100 years had largely been used as a component in blended scotch, released its first official multi, single malt bottling in 2001, a 12-year-old Scotch whiskey uh, released as part of Diego's Flora and Fauna Ring, which was well-received by the Scotch. Now back to our spooky stuff. Let's say is the distinction of hosting a spirit of spectral sort. The story, goes to the, uh, story of the ghost dates back to the Second World War, when distilleries often doubled as temporary housings for soldiers. One unfortunate soldier met his end far from the battlefields of Europe, within the confines of the distillery. Details are scarce on the incident, but the man is said to have accidentally electrocuted himself while lodging at Glensay and died. It is said that his spirit still roams around the grounds every night and still wearing his uniform, carrying his rifle, as if he is ready for battlefields that he never saw. Well, I guess they've got, you know, a pretty... Yes. You should be messing with that. Any fun comments? 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 Any Oh, and uh, Alex wants to see the tire, which I had to ask, do we, do you have any scotch? Because we are actually the Walmart now. <laughs> we have plenty of whiskey. And I just have, I drink and I know things. We, we yeah. have, uh, we have several varieties of Jameson in the house. We have Tom Mordew. So, so, so a couple of whiskeys, a couple of bourbons. Um, I have scotch, though. I have scotch. I have to go shopping. Oh, darn. Timbers, Timberwolves make excellent companion animals. 
<laughs> and Roberta, Werewolves of Richmond. We do have that story up there, Richmond Werewolves. Yes, uh, Henrico Werewolves. Henrico Werewolves, excuse me, seen running across the uh, Henrico or Highland Springs Golf Course once upon a time. Very unique story. It is. We generally don't share it because that's about all we know about it. Somebody says they saw a werewolf on the Highland Springs Golf Course some, some time ago. I claim they dog or somebody to see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, it is what it is. But we will we'll come back and revisit werewolves again someday because that was fun. And there's way more stories, of course. So our next stop, actually, I say our next stop. We're not going far. It's going to keep us right there on roads. Um, so we move a mere half mile down the road to Glen Ross Distillery, founded in 1878. There is a lot of history here. And with a cemetery just across the street, many would suspect that the area is ripe for paranormal activity. Before diving into that, there is one interesting and creepy item of note about Glenross and its neighboring cemetery. Scotland's environment provides a ripe breeding ground for a particular type of black fungus that can be found in many places, including almost every Scotch distillery except Glenross. The fungus can be seen blackening the gravestones across from Glenross, adding to the eerie atmosphere, but some unknown cause has kept the fungus from creeping into the distillery proper. I don't know if we have a mycologist in the house that can explain this fungal phenomenon. Uh, I don't expect that we do, and honestly, I have to look at mycologists. Mycologist, it, it's, a, it's a mushroom um, expert, mushroom scientist. I don't think we have any of those in our, our fan base that I'm aware of, but I digress. Anyway. So, in 1894, Major James Grant, owner of Glen Grant Distillery, just north of Glen Ross Distillery, was on a hunting tip in Makalanga, Africa, which is now part of the Zimbabwe, when he came across a young boy who had been abandoned in the bush. The boy's family could not be found, and Grant was kind enough to take him in and bring him home to Scotland. Named Byway, he grew up in the village of Ross, attending the local school and later working as a page boy, then butler. Then, with the onset of World War I, he found himself conscripted into the Army. He joined the Northamptonshire Regiment stationed at Fort George and later served in the Middle East. He was awarded the British War Medal and the Victory Medal. After his unit disbanded, he returned to Ross and resumed his duties at Glen Grant House. He also joined the local amateur football team, Ross Victoria, where he earned a reputation as a solid and reliable goalkeeper. It has been said that he was the only African butler to ever play for a Scottish team. What? <laughs> when his playing days were over, he remained loyal to the team and regularly attended home games after the club joined the Highland League as Ross FC. Indeed, he became so much of a fixture that he was eventually given a complimentary seat in the stands and a halftime cup of tea. On the rare occasion when he watched Ross at an away match, he traveled on the team bus. In 1931, Major Grant died, but made provisions for his heirs to make sure that Byway maintained a comfortable life. Glen Grant House was requisitioned during World War II, and Byway was forced to take on employment as a servant in Lothamouth. We'll go with that, Lothamouth. He did not enjoy that. After the war, he did return home to Ross. However, Glen Grant House was turned into flat and let out to the Glen Grant distillery workers. 
Bai Wei was to find himself living in one of the apartments and provision was made for him to get his meals daily from the Seafield Arms in the village. Bai Wei passed away in 1972, and while nobody knew his exact age, uh, he was thought to have been at least around 80 years old. He left his life savings to Ross Football Club, and Bai Wei was laid to rest in a grave overlooking the Glen Ross Distillery, seemingly at eternal rest. In 1980, a new still house was opened at Glen Ross Distillery, but the new number three still was not performing as well as it should. Around this time, Byway began to make appearances at the Glen Ross Distillery. One thing was for sure, Byway was not haunting the distillery in search of a dram. He never had developed a taste for the local whiskey. His cocktail of choice was a gin tonic. Byway would be seen just hanging around the still room and always on rough nights when the Highland winds were howling. The master distiller saw him calmly standing beside the new stills, his long white hair flowing, and immediately recognized him as the celebrated local favorite Byway. The story of the Glen Ross apparition reached to the ears of Cedric Wilson, a professor of pharmacology at University College Dublin. He was also an expert in paranormal phenomena and in ley lines. Although the distillery management was highly skeptical, they gave the professor permission to visit the distillery during the distillery's silent period in August of 1981. The professor investigated and found that the new stills unwittingly disturbed a ley line. Wilson then said, uh, uh, then said to have gone to the neighboring graveyard to chat uh, to, chat to Byway's gravestone. He communicated with Byway, who expressed his concern that the new stills needed to be moved or the spirit might be affected. The spirit has liquid this time. This line passed through Ross Castle, the distillery, Ross Cemetery, and burned fence to the Colburn Stone to the Pictish Fort at Birdhead. Iron rods were hammered into the damaged ley line to correct the energy flow. The stills were then moved, and Byway has not been seen since. Still, many toasts the ghost have taken place since in order to avoid any more trouble at Glen Ross Distillery. Well, he did have to know there was something wrong, even though it wasn't his grave. Know the use of fungi to face travel instantaneously in Star Trek Discovery. I do remember that too. And that is about the limits of Patrick's knowledge on the subject. <laughs> I think we're probably matched on that point. Yes. All right. <laughs> so we're going to hop over to another one in SpaceX, which is the Glen Rock facility. Uh, this is a little to the east uh, of Ross, where we just were in the Valley of Hornook. Over the course of 200 years, Glen Rock has become well known for aging its scotch and sherry paths. And they think that the distillery's resident spirit may have actually caught a ride on one of those wooden storage festivals from his home country of Spain. Yes, you did hear that right. We're talking about somebody who shipped themselves in a cast. Yeah. I mean, granted, I could think of worse than I mean, people go over and move Niagara Falls in a barrel, so you know, hey. All right, so one day, back in the 1970s, as the Glen Rock Saronic uh, Distillery, a shipment of Oroloso sherry casks was being unloaded from the traditional village farmhouses, where an apparent stowaway was spotted darting away from the empty cask. She was described as being small and dark, dressed in a scarlet and black, wearing a full mantilla. 
availability in the traditional laced or silk veil that is popular in Spanish fashion. This led to the legend of the beautiful Spanish woman inhabiting the distillery. With numerous sightings and the noise of rustling skirts alerting workers to her presence. But according to the folks of Glen Veronic, the transition from the Spanish sun to the cold and damp of average nature was not a happy one. The Spanish lady grew lonely and sought an escape from the unfamiliar surroundings. It's believed she stumbled upon the underground tunnel that led from the Glen Veronic to the nearby Glen House where she found peace, comfort, and lots of human spirits to keep her company. This beautiful home predated the distillery by about half a century, and it was used as a retreat for guests of the distillery today. Within Glen's house, the Spanish lady chose to take up residence in the bedroom named Glendara, and many guests have seen her or felt her presence in the decades since her arrival, especially late at night after a few drums. <laughs> I Yeah, I want to read this. Yeah, this is I, 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 I want to visit this book because, well, it's just, it seems cool. We are sticking to Scotland, so we're not leaving Scotland quite yet, but we are going to sail to the remote Isle of Jura off the west coast in just a stone's throw from a slightly more famous neighbor, the Isle of Islay. Legend has it that in 1781, Laird Archibald Campbell outlawed a distilling on the Isle of Jura. Thirty years later, he awoke from the dead of night to find a ghostly woman floating over him as he lay in bed, telling him telling him off for the lack of whiskey on the island. It scared him so badly, he not only reversed the ban, but he built a distillery in 1810 to appease the ghost, laying the foundations for Jura Scotch whiskey. The original distillery struggled on and off through the balance of the 1800s before falling into disrepair and eventually being dismantled in 1900. Upon the removal of the distillery, it's said that a bottle of whiskey was buried at the site to keep the woman thirst at bay. With the loss of the distillery, Jura languished and the population plummeted. Things started to brighten in the 1950s when two local property owners teamed up with distillery experts to revive the nearly forgotten distillery. After a tremendous amount of work, the modern Jura Scotch Whiskey Distillery opened in 1963. Well, the ghostly woman who terrified Campbell about 150 years prior seems to have remained at rest, the modern distillery may have some spirits of its own. In 2010, a pair of journalists visited Jura to conduct paranormal investigation. Of course, one of their stops was the distillery, where they met up with the distillery's resident cat, Elvis. For his part, Elvis was agreeable when it came to participating in the investigation. The journalist fit a cat cam to Elvis's collar and set him about on his nightly rounds. While moving about the darkened distillery, Elvis's camera caught what seemed to be the spectral appearance of a woman. Eager to know if it was the whiskey-loving woman from generations ago, a psychic was called to follow up on the appearance. This psychic identified the woman in the modern distillery as Elizabeth Quinn, a name that was very familiar to a former distillery manager who remembered a teacher by that name who had resided on Jura many years ago, but not so long as to be the same spirit that visited Campbell. Now, at this point, I will say it is worth noting, somebody knows somebody, so knows somebody on Jura. Everybody knows everybody on Jura, because apparently there's about 212 people living on Jura. So that's the entire population of the entire island, 
very stable population, so much so that Jura actually, uh, Jura whiskey, Scotch whiskey actually named a, one of their releases the 212 in honor of the 112 residents of Jura. Back to that. Um, so Elizabeth's presence at the distillery is a little bit of a mystery as their only common link is residing on the Isle of Jura. That said, what school teacher has confronted the dram at least once to rinse away a challenging day in the classroom? <laughs> in any case, the most important thing here is that Elizabeth seems to be a friendly spirit. They have never experienced malicious activity at the distillery, and the Jura brand ambassador even heard in disembodied voice late one night telling him the children are all right. One more fun paranormal note about Jura Scotch Whiskey, this not being a haunting, but rather In 1700, the Laird of Clan Campbell evicted a wise old seer from her home on the island of Jura. Blessed with the gift of the third eye and incensed at her treatment, she prophesied that when the last Campbell left Jura, he would be one-eyed and his belongings would be drawn in a cart by a white horse. Fast forward to 1938, Charles Campbell, veteran of the Great War and blind in one eye from his service, headed down the ancient pier for one last time on a cart drawn by a single white horse. It is claimed that day the sound of the cart on the track could be heard for miles. Jura created a whiskey to commemorate this legend called Prophecy. I want to visit Jura. <laughs> Uh, uh, nope, nothing that we need to address on the air. Okay. So we're going to Islay now, uh, to the Beaumont Distillery. Uh, this is, of course, a close neighbor, and the spirits uh, that are produced in this part of Scotland are so distinct that they carry the name Isley on its one four main types of Scottish whiskey. The other being Highland, Lowland, and Stateside. Uh, Isley Scotch is refined for a very specific taste, and they were known for their hearty notes. It's very smoky whiskey or Scotch. <coughs> Excuse me. I would encourage any distilled spirit lover to try an Isley Scotch at least once, but it's admittedly not for everyone. Brief Scotch lesson aside, the Isle of Isley is always uh, first had to them. Uh, for Beaumont, the oldest distillery on the island, and a place that is home to a fascinating camp. One dark and stormy night, of course, Proctor Lachlan and Balance spotted a ghostly silhouette of a headless horseman galloping away from his house. Disturbed by the frightful sight, Lachlan quickly entered his home, and the only thing that was out of place was a bottle of Beaumont on the table with a large dram that was missing. Terrified that a headless specter seemed to have partaken in the bottle, Lachlan committed a horrific atrocity. He threw away the not yet empty bottle of the treasure scotch. Mm -hmm. No. No, no. Party foul. I don't care if a spirit gets into my spirit. The bottles are not getting pitched empty or pitched uh, with anything left in them. Yeah. The story has been retold many times. Almost every type of business scotch has been featured in that unfinished bottle that was left by Lachlan's table. So they gave tried to lend a logical explanation to the headless horseman as well, saying that the man riding away with Lachlan's brother who had flipped up his collar 
so high that it would descend off the element. Regardless of how the story is told or how much or how little truth may be associated with it, it is deeply ingrained in the culture today. Today, any true ink, the resident of Islay, will open a fresh bottle of local scotch for guests and throw off the cork into the fire to prevent the headless horsemen from returning to join them for a nip. Stories of, uh, involving Bobar don't stop with the headless horsemen, of course. There is uh, believed to be a resident spirit inside, uh, residing along the liquid spirit of the distillery vault. And then there's the uh, time that the devil himself is such a visited Isley, by the way. On a dark winter night in 1839, people of Isley found a demon believed to be the devil himself in a local church. The church just happened to be round, giving the devil no corner to hide it. So he fled the house of worship and was chased to the door of Beaumont Distillery, where he got lost. The island residents considered this victory enough, and they figured that the devil had packed himself into a whiskey barrel and was shipped away to the mainland. The legend became so prominent that Belmore rolled out a special bottle called the Devil's Cap. <laughs> Which, that's actually something I hadn't heard of before, the whole thing with um, the devil not having a corner to hide in. Oh, I've heard that lots of times. I don't know how I haven't heard that before. I mean, I, you know. And, and you being an engineer, too. How did you not know that? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, it makes makes sense in its own way. It's, it's not exactly a surprising thing. Didn't we talk about it in the Oxygen on House? In what? Oxygen on Maybe. But that's been a year and a half ago now. Yeah, that's how we talked about it in the Oxygen House. That's Washington Oxygen House, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 yeah, which we did on Election Eve 2020, which is almost a year and a half ago. Yeah. I'm fine. All right. So, yes, we are going to come stateside now. Um, and, uh, of course, we mentioned bourbon, which means our first stop is going to be Kentucky. And here we find ourselves at Buffalo Trace Distillery that is in Frankfort, Kentucky. What your whistle? Now, it has historically been known by several names, including the George T. Stagg Distillery and the Old Fashioned Copper Distillery. Its namesake bourbon brand, Buffalo Trace Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, was introduced in August of 1999. The company claims the distillery is the oldest continuously operating distillery in the United States and that the name Buffalo Trace refers to an ancient buffalo crossing on the banks of the Kentucky River in Franklin County. Now, under its old name, George T. Stagg Distillery, the property was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in May of 2001 and finally and was designated a National Historic Landmark on March 11, 2013. Despite Buffalo Trace Distillery's claims, another historic distillery, Burke's Distillery, which is used for the production of Maker's Mark, is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest operating bourbon distillery. Records indicate that Burke's Distillery opened operations in 1805, but regardless of who claims the official mantle, Buffalo Trace does have a long and storied path. Now, it's believed that the first distilling that took place on the site of the current Buffalo Trace Distillery dates back to 1775, with the first building dedicated to distilling opening in 1858. In 1870, the distillery was purchased by Edmund H. Taylor and given its first name, the Old Fire Copper Distillery. 
Taylor sold the distillery eight years later to George Stagg, and Stagg sank considerable resources into the distillery the years that followed, including a complete rebuild after the distillery burned after being struck by lightning in 1872. In 1886, Stagg installed steam heating in the storage warehouses, making them the first climate-controlled warehouse for aging whiskey in the nation. During Prohibition, the distillery was allowed to remain operational in order to make whiskey for medicinal purposes. Told you, it's medicine. Mm, here's to that. Now, in October of 2016, yeah, we took a big leap forward, during renovations to convert the building to a meeting and event space, workers discovered the foundation of the original distillery building that had burned 144 years prior, along with the remains of fermenters from that same year. The original distillery foundation was left in place after the fire, and an expanded distillery building was built as a replacement. The site is now open for visitors to Buffalo Trace. With such a long history, it's little surprise that Buffalo Trace Distillery has a resident ghost who can't seem to quit his job. Colonel Albert Blanton started as an office boy and worked his way up to company president in the early 1900s. Albert Blanton would dedicate more than half a century of his life to the crafting of Kentucky bourbon before passing away in 1959. While his mortal form may have left the property, many believe this respected Kentucky gentleman lingers on at the distillery that he cared for and loved for so many years. And if the Blanton name sounds familiar, it's because the famously fine crafted Blanton single barrel bourbon, the bottle with the horse on top, is named after this man who contributed so much to the distillery and the industry as a whole. If you're curious on what it looks like, we have had a bottle. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It looks like this. Yeah, it is. It was very tasty. <laughs> very tasty, very special. It was a gift. And, uh, it's we the, loved it. We loved it. It's the only model we've ever had. Might need to change that, though. Writing this kind of got me a little bit of a craving to... Uh, You're not near the candlelight. No. Okay. okay. That's where <laughs> Yeah. Maybe I want to go buy some more. Yeah. It's very good. Yes. And that's another thing. We don't have any bourbon on the bar right now. It's all Irish. No, we're still makers of this. Oh, we do? Yeah. Oh, okay. We got makers All right. Anyway. We don't have that much, so we got some. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, Blanton isn't believed to be the only spirit at Buffalo Trace. As a matter of fact, paranormal investigators who have been allowed at the distillery think there may be as many as a couple dozen ghosts lingering amongst the legendary liquid spirits. Some of them can be quite a bit mischievous, pinching bottoms and leaving unexplained footsteps in warehouses. We're happy to say that Buffalo Trace embraced its spooky side, offering ghost tours beginning at Warehouse C. Distillery workers have reported seeing a whiskey figure walking among the barrels. Lindsay Brewer, a Buffalo Trace ghost tour guide, says that many years ago, a foreman and his crew were moving barrels to another warehouse when he heard a voice that said, get out. Now, this isn't what you might think. He didn't see anyone around, so he thought nothing of it. Later, she says the same voice yelled, get out now. Again, not actually malicious because this is what followed. The foreman listened this time. The foreman booked it out of there. He told his men to get some fresh air, and moments after the last man left the warehouse, 
building collapsed. Good ghost. Not every ghost that yells, get out, is actually trying to say, you know, bugger off. This one was trying to help. So kudos to a good ghost. Now, elsewhere on the property stands Stony Point Mansion, the home built in 1934 by Albert B. Lenz. And the location is ultimately where he passed away. Today, it is used as office space for the distillery. Employees here will tell you they hear footsteps, feel an icy chill, and even recognize some ghostly humming or singing thought to be from the ghost of Blanton's housekeeper, Sarah. Miss Blanton was a lady, but it was a family secret that she was also a smoker. In some rooms, you can smell cigarette smoke when no one is there. In a separate incident, one that may have involved the spirit of Albert Blanton himself, an employee was on their way to the Stony Point Mansion when they saw the figure of a gray man watching out one of the windows. When the figure abruptly vanished, the employee swore that they would never work in the mansion alone again. Visitors and staff members report hearing unexplained noises and people talking in Blanton's former meeting room. A security guard says he saw lights on in the gift shop after hours. When he spotted someone inside the building, he went to investigate, only to find it empty. Photos of similar incidents line the walls of Stony Point's basement. It's cool, but I like when places like that embrace the sea side. Road trip. Road trip. Seriously. It's on the list. All right, so now we're going over to Glen's Creek Distillery, still in Kentucky. Uh, this is um, a place that's had its fair share of unexplainable events. It's situated in the remaining section of the historic Old Crow Distillery. Glens Creek opened in 2013 and added to the legacy, of course, of the Kentucky bourbon. It is an immigrant named James Crow who moved to Kentucky in 1823. Crow began his distilling career working for Colonel Lois Field over at Greer uh, Creek Distillery in 1835. He applied scientific methods to the production of bourbon. With the use of thermometers, hydrometers, pH balance checks, Crow standardized the sour mash process, improving, <coughs> excuse me, improving the quality. Crow later moved to Old Oscar Pepper Distillery, where he first produced his Old Crow brand of bourbon. Old Crow's logo, a crow perched on top of grains of barley, was symbolic of a bridge between the North and the South during the American Civil War. It came about after Pennsylvania Brigade training at State College. Pennsylvania thought that Old Crow was likely the only good thing to come out of the South. Fearing not being able to drink Old Crow again, the soldiers wrote to the President Lincoln proclaiming that we must not let a fine gentleman Old Crow escape and that Old Crow with the sharpest talons holds on to the barley forever. After the war concluded, the logo, which was a picture of uh, James Crow, was swapped for a regular Crow. At Old Oscar Pepper, William F. Mitchell reviewed Crow's meticulous notes and was able to replicate most of his processes. He left Old Oscar Pepper and went to work at the newly formed Gaines Berry and Company in 1872. The bourbon produced at Gaines was named after Crow's recipe titled Merely Old Crow. National Distillers purchased Gaines in 1934 and the Old Crow brand prospered and became one of the first national whiskey brands. After World War II, National Distillers began focusing on industrial distilling processes. Old Crow was refurbished with new equipment, including a copper column distiller. 
in the 1960s. National distillers also modified the amount of set back or the part of the mash, scent mash added to a new batch and the sour mash process. While costs were shaved, the quality also started to slide. Sales declined over the years, and in 1987, National Distillers sold their remaining interest in Old Crow to Jim Dewey. The plant closed, and then some of the barrel houses were used for barrel storage by Jim Dean. Three other warehouses due to their age were abandoned in the 1990s. Scrappers and guys of wood reclaimers dismantled the column distiller and other metals in the complex in the 2000s. Neil Craig and his partner, David Marrier, have purchased the remains of the abandoned distillery in December of 2013. And while their partnership didn't last, Marrier stuck around to operate Glen's Creek Distilling at Old First Day. He also hasn't been shy to share some of the odd experiences that he has had in the distillery at the Kraken Pike. Marrier <coughs> recalled how the metal steps outside that led up to the office had a really distinct sound. He would always be able to tell when somebody was coming up those steps. One day, and he said he was in the office alone, he heard the distinct sound of someone walking up the steps. So when he peeked out to see who was coming to join him, he found that he was still quite alone in the whole distillery. He's working at the small distillery. Those who have been working at the small distillery have said that they hear sample glasses scattering across the floor and the voices of people laughing and talking when the facility is empty. Paranormal investigations that have taken place at the site have come to the conclusion that as those do an old distiller and some employees from the generations past still linger at their old place of work. Given that Old Crow was once one of the top bourbons in America, it's understandable that some people who are so proud of their craft and life might still carry on after death. While you can't get a taste of Old Crow at Glens Creek Distillery today, you can find it as one of the brands that's been being proudly produced in today. That is said, a visit to Glen Creek would still be worth the while. Uh, and of course, if somebody wants their bourbon and fancy uh, historic surroundings with their taste. Time to go uh, bourbon distillery hopping? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we are going to move along to Main Street in downtown Louisville. Now, Doc Crow's Smokehouse and Raw Bar sits next to the Old Forester Distillery. Both are located on the former site of the Old Gold House Hotel, once a popular stop on Louisville's, uh, excuse me, Louisville's Whiskey Row. The original Gold House opened in 1835 and hosted Jefferson Davis, Charles Dickens, Abraham Lincoln, and Ulysses S. Grant. According to some accounts, the Galt House is where Grant and General William Tecumseh Sherman devised their plan to capture Atlanta during the Civil War. The hotel was also the site of at least two murders. Union General Jefferson C. Davis, not to be confused with the Confederate president, shot and killed General William Bull Nelson after a dispute. Prominent Louisville resident Alfred Victor DuPont died after his mistress shot him when he refused to take responsibility for her pregnancy. It's been reported that DuPont still walks the streets of Louisville dressed in a black tuxedo and top hat, carrying a gold-tipped cane. After the original Gull House went out of business in 1919, other businesses moved in. Over the years, ghosts have been blamed for setting fires and running over people with runaway whiskey barrels. 
Guests at the high-end barbecue joint says that glasses fly off the shelves and furniture moves on its own. At the distillery, ghostly activity seems to be a daily occurrence. Security guard Zach Evans divulges that several employees have stories about ghostly encounters. He says he frequently sees the ghosts himself. On numerous occasions, he's seen a man who isn't there. It started one day when he was getting off the elevator, and he just saw this older gentleman. He had a mustache and a beard that was all gray, and he was dressed like a worker. He was just standing there, looking at me through the door. Then he just walked off. We checked the video, and there was no one there. After that, he saw him every day for the following week. Other stories include people walking through walls and visions of a woman in white. One person claims to have seen a ghost slowly drinking bourbon from a sealed barrel or sealed bottle in an executive's office. Seems to be a spirit with good taste in spirits. All right. Am I continuing? I think so. Okay. Somebody's somebody demanding attention. Somebody's up to. So, <laughs> are we going to learn about the origin of the Green Fairy if there is one <laughs> on one of these haunted distillery live streams? Um, I'm trying to remember if that's on the extra, but now I can put it there. Green Fairy. I can work on the extra Green Fairy. <laughs> Noted. I'm pretty sure I have that story somewhere. Pretty sure I do. We'll have to make sure it winds up in volume two when we get back to that in probably a couple months' time. It'll be July. A few months' time. Yeah. We will be back. Funny if I know make sure I have that story done. Yeah. Mischievous ghosts are fun to watch, but it's a whole other thing when they start lighting fires and throwing whiskey barrels at you. Yeah. My question though is, what did you do to piss them off? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that takes a lot of energy. You piss the something off. Yeah. And and Alex says, yeah, there is always a woman in white. Yeah. There are women in white everywhere when it comes. And it's not white, blue. Yeah. <laughs> and occasionally the red. Got <laughs> yeah, over here. Oh, Where are we going? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Back to so, the story. Back to the stories. Yep. Sorry, Pat. Yeah, distraction. We know. Uh, now, okay. now I gotta admit, we are ending this one on a little bit of an odd note because <laughs> um, uh, we are going to leave Kentucky. Uh, we are going to actually head to California. Now, that now, one I was not expecting, by the way. Well, I I've seen I've, I've heard the stories about this place before, and we will end this on a cautionary note. This place will probably sound familiar to some of you if you watch uh, shows like. Um, uh, uh, ghost, ghost, hunters. ghost Hunters, yes. yes. I'm pretty sure that this place showed up on there and uh, was um, rather infamous in, its, uh, in what they found there because, well, yeah, it was basically, um, yeah. We'll get back to that. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So, um, now, while the West Coast is generally not well known as the stilling hotspot, People all over the world have a fondness for liquid spirits, and where there is demand, someone is sure to pop up as a local supplier. This was particularly true during Prohibition when the San Mateo Coast was an ideal spot for rum running, bootleggers, and speakeasies. 
One of the most successful speakeasies of the era was Frank's Place on the cliffs at Moss Beach. Built by Frank Torres in 1927, Frank's became a popular night spot for silent film stars and politicians from the city. Mystery writer Dashiell Hammett frequented the place and used it as a setting for one of the detective stories. The restaurant, located on a cliff above a secluded beach, was a perfect location to benefit from the clandestine activities of Canadian rum runners. Under cover of darkness and fog, illegal whiskey was landed on the beach, dragged up a steep cliff, and loaded into the waiting vehicles for transport to San Francisco. Some of the blues always found its way into the garage between or beneath Frank's place. Frank Torres used his excellent political and social connections to operate a highly successful, if illegal, business. Unlike many of the other speakeasies along the coast, Frank's place was said to have never been raided. With the repeal of Prohibition in 1933, Frank Torres remained in the food service business as one of the most successful restaurateurs along the San Mateo County coastline. Frank's Place, now called the Moss Beach Distillery, still retains its spectacular view and secluded location above the ocean coves. The distillery also retains one of Frank's former customers as well, its resident ghost, the, uh, the Blue Lady. Still haunts the premises, trying to recapture the romance and excitement of Frank's speakeasy years. She is the perfect ghost. She is said to glide through rooms, gently swing chandeliers, murmur and laugh, and sometimes touch unsuspecting visitors. She is beautiful and wistful, forever gazing out to the Pacific Ocean in her glistening blue dress. The Blue Lady of the Moss Beach Distillery is perhaps Northern California's single most famous ghost. She's featured constantly on most haunted lists and is an attraction unto herself at the restaurant. There are a number of iterations on the Blue Lady story, and almost all are set during Prohibition. Commonly, she's a local girl who falls in love with a restaurant piano. Sometimes they're torn apart by a love triangle. Other times, she is unhappily married, and the spurned husband kills her, and sometimes the pianist, in a fit of rage. In one version, the despondent, love-born woman drowns herself in the sea. Then there's the girl with the silver eyes. It's Nadrashal Hammett's best story, and it's far from his most famous. It tells the tale of a private eye who goes in search of crooks at, roadhouse, uh, at a roadhouse south of San Francisco. The roadhouse is a famed spot for rum runners. The story is set during Prohibition and plays host to a strange, intoxicating femme fatale. She was a slender girl in a glistening blue gown that exhibited a generous spread in front and back and arms that were worth showing, Hannah writes. She had a mass of dark brown hair above an oval face of the color that pink ought to be. Her eyes were wide set and of a gray shade that wasn't altogether unlike the shadows on polished silver that the poet had compared them to. If you haven't read the story, you'd likely, uh, you'd, if you hadn't read the story, you'd likely you'd never see the parallels. But once you have, it's impossible to not think of the Blue Lady. All that said, we would like to end this episode on a slightly different and cautionary note. While the desire to explain a haunting can be immense, it can also be easy to jump to some erroneous and often downright sketchy conclusions, as is exhibited in this last possible origin story for the Moss Beach Distillery's Blue Lady. In the 1990s, a new owner asked psychic Sylvia Brown to stop by for a visit. 
in March 1992, she took a walk around the property and immediately began talking about a woman named Mary Morley. She had no prompting and no background information, the examiner reported. Considering she'd had a year's warning, though, she had ample time to do a little research. But she made a mistake that would soon become evident. In April, Brown told her newsletter subscribers she would be holding a seance at the Moss Beach distillery. They assembled in a private dining room and held their breath as Brown called upon the bed. There were three ghosts, forever trapped in an ill-fated love triangle with them in, with them in the room. One was Mary Morley, a married woman. Another was John Katana, a handsome playboy. And the third was Anna Philbrick, another pretty paramour of Katina. Uh, Brown said Mary Morley loved Katina, who was two-timing her with Anna. Anna, for unclear reasons, threw herself into the ocean and drowned. Mary died of crushing injuries to her head and chest. When restaurant staffers went looking for Mary Morley in San Mateo County archives, they were astonished to find a woman with her name died in a highway crash in 1919. This, believers say, is proof she is the blue lady of Moss Beach. There are a number of problems with this origin story, however. The first is that the car crash happened nowhere near Moss Beach. Contemporary newspaper stories report the woman was driving home to Redwood City after an evening seeing friends in San Francisco. The car overturned from their visitation valley, crushing her to death. There is nothing to indicate she had any connection to Moss Beach or its famed tavern, which didn't even exist at the time of her death. In addition, there are no John Cantinas uh, or Anna Philbrooks in the Bay Area census records who could be the right people for Brown's ghost story. And there's no Anna who cast herself into the sea in any newspaper archives. Were one hazard a guess, Brown, or an intrepid staffer, discovered the death certificate of a young woman who had died in a San Mateo County highway accident, erroneously assumed that it was on Highway 1 near Moss Beach, and turned her into the blue lady. The story over the past three decades stuck, and that is one of the more favored versions of the tale today, despite the fact that it has basically zero substantiating evidence to go along with it. So sometimes you got to kind of have to take stories, a little bit of face value, listen with skeptical ears, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, getting back to uh, uh, what I was mentioning before with ghost hunters. If this is the same place I'm thinking of, uh, when they went there, they had activity off the charts. But activity, they quickly found, was in all kinds of little staged things. Yeah, that, uh, I this one. Yeah, staged things all mm -hmm. over the bar. They had a little mechanism to make the little uh, lights over the bar swing as if something was making them swing. They had um, a little little mannequin type thing hidden behind a one-way mirror to make people think that they had somebody looking back at them in the mirror. Um, so this restaurant was all kinds of set up, not only as a restaurant, but as a quasi-haunted house, and they did not warn the TAPS folks of any of this before they went in for their investigation. TAPS was none too pleased to go in there and find all this fake stuff intentionally set up to convince people that hauntings were going on. Yeah. That said, they did get a little, or no, excuse me, rather, no, 
when they went outside. They left to stuff on the cliff. Yeah, that, that, that's where the blue lady is frequently seen on the cliffs outside overlooking the ocean. They did get a little something out there, but not exactly the strongest evidence they've ever gathered on an investigation. Yeah. But um, that was a stop that uh, did not uh, ultimately set well with them. I think it's got to be at least be 10 years since that episode. It was a long time ago now, yeah. relatively speaking. So you always kind of have to um, be a little... It's a cool-looking place, but yeah. just beware that, you know, this is one where it looks like a tale was invented to bring people in. Yep. So, but let me Yeah, Patrick shared a Wikipedia for Moss Beach Distillery. Thank you. And the music from the... <laughs> uh, the when I say cantina, the, the, the music from Star Wars cantina. <laughs> yeah. And yes, yes, we, I, I'm not misremembering that episode. Patrick remembers it, too. That was a pretty messed up episode. But... That is our last story for this evening. Yeah, so. so next time, this one's going to be fun. Haunted Amusement Park Part 1. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with this one. And this one, we actually got the um, the inspiration from it from Guy Hutchinson. Um, this is his Bippity Boppity Boozy Book. Uh, that takes you drinking through Disney and he says. Mm, let's just say it's the copycat recipe book for the drink to Disney. Um, with some of his own improvements and some fun stories in it. Uh, but he actually was at GalaxyCon that took him a few months ago, and um, he actually did a story of, uh, or a session on terror in the music park uh, that was looking at um, both ghost stories and uh, the um, the October terrors that now are like going to all of the music parks. Um, so we got a couple of good stories from him from Disney, and that just launched me off, and I went and had fun down that research trail. Oh. So. so I'm just uh, putting his uh, name in chat. That's Guy Hutchinson, who's a really nice guy. Got yeah. the opportunity to chat with him for a few minutes when we were there. Um, um, there's a lot of Disney blogs, so yeah. um, he's really fun to watch, and just go check out his stuff, and he's got several books out. Yeah. Including his own um, fictional ghost story at Disney. Yes, yeah. yeah. A couple of uh, Disney employees uh, that were kind of a, somewhat a little bit of uh, not your typical Disney employees. Apparently they were kind of lacquer-esque or something like that. Wind up dying in a car crash and they are kind of bored and they decide they have nothing better to do than go back and haunt Disney World. Yep. <laughs> so. Because, you know, happiest place on earth, right? Yep, why not? But yeah, so that was uh, that got the ball rolling in our in our heads about this. Oh, and uh, he did one on uh, abandoned music. abandoned amusement yeah. and uh, also like some of the scariest attractions that yeah. have ever been as well. So got us thinking. And uh, so now we have part one and part two. We're going to do them back to back. Yep, and that's that is the guy. Yep. Anyway, so yes, um, that, that draws us to a close for this evening. So thank you again to everybody for watching. Um, just a quick reminder, again, you can go and uh, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, the next first newsletter is going to come out before we do our next show in two weeks. I can, that's one thing I can say for sure. Um, and uh, 
if you are uh, if you want to go ahead and provide some feedback for it, we definitely appreciate that. It's going to be our my first uh, shot out of the gate actually writing some sort of newsletter to send out. So uh, feedback is appreciated. And anyways, yeah. Yep. And also remember, Hamid QS is yep. still available. We have some clips available, so definitely if you want to come out on that, we look forward to it. I just posted um, or shared a memory of having my cat from two trips ago. Yep. And so yes, definitely you're going to be going to visit Hamid my house while we're down there. Uh, it's also haunted. We talked about this. Even and though it's, it's not on the official itinerary. But you got your days open, so yeah. you're going to go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So with that, uh, I think that's it. Yep. I think, I think we covered everything else. So again, thanks everybody for watching. And as always, if you have any questions or anything or whatever, just want to chat between now and the next episode, Drop us a note, or better yet, come on out and see us on a tour. We'd love to actually see you in person. It'd be fantastic. So, with that, we bid you all a good night. See you all later. Bye.